0: Before I walked up here, I was handed a note by a young man that's concerned about the world, and he asked me if I would pray. So I wasn't planning on doing this, but to honor that request, I'm going to pray as we open up the word together. Father, I thank you that you are in control of what is seemingly a very out of control world. And when we are disoriented by the things we read and the things we hear on the news, we are grateful for your love for us, and your for your concern for the world around us. We pray, God, that you bring peace and healing to a world that seems out of control. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. So morning. We're so glad that you are here. Uh, we are going to be opening up God's Word together. I, uh, yesterday, well, Friday, had to travel to Houston, uh, Texas, where the weather was uh, 75 degrees outside. I came home yesterday and was completely unaware that winter had showed up. It is, was crazy cold. I was not dressed for it. I was not prepared for it. It was incredibly disorienting for me. I, I, this is my sixth winter here. You'd think I would get used to it by now, but it catches me off guard every single time. I don't know what your experience was like uh, with, the, with the cold weather, or maybe even what your experiences have been in life, but for me, I have had a number of disorienting, disruptive circumstances over the course of my life. Things that, as I'm traveling down a path, stuff happens, and I get redirected in a different direction. I don't know if any of you can relate. Maybe your lives have been perfectly smooth. No? No? I remember the very first time this happened to me. I was like five or six years old. I grew up in California and my family was visiting the San Diego Zoo. And I got separated from my family. I got lost, which has happened many, many times since. But I got lost and I was adopted by a group of geese. And I got cornered by these group of geese and they were eye to eye with me. I was five years old and they were as tall as I was and their little beady eyes were staring at me and they kept honking at me and cornering me, backing me up until I fell into a puddle of mud. I was so disoriented. I had no idea which end was up, which end was north. I was completely lost. And by this point, a crowd of people was watching uh, this whole thing unfold. And I, I wasn't brought back to reality until I saw my mom's hand come through the crowd and pull me up out of the mud. Another time later in life, a group of us decided we wanted to go whitewater rafting. None of us had a raft or a guide. So we just put on some life jackets and went to a hydroelectric discharge in our community and floated down this river. And it was time to get out, and friend number one went over to the beach, and friend number two made it over to the beach. And as I came to the beach, I got close to this big boulder, and I got sucked underneath the boulder, and I was in this underwater eddy for like, it seemed like an hour. But it really was like 10 seconds. But I was just going over and over and bouncing my head every time I would flip over. And I eventually popped out like a 50 yards downstream on the other side of the boulder. And none of my friends could see me. They thought, this is it. He's gone. And I popped up out of the water and I was completely disoriented. I was frantic. I had no idea where I was or what had just happened. I don't know about you. Maybe you've had some moments in your life where you've had those disorienting experience. But, but this morning, I want to talk about the disorienting nature of what, re, what a relationship with Jesus Christ looks like. I've had these situations, and every one of them, whether they're the embarrassing or whether they're the significant, they all have impacted me. They've all changed me. They've all morphed me into a different person. So for you, maybe the moment happened because of a death of someone that you loved. Maybe it's the birth of someone that you love. It could have been the romantic start of a relationship or the traumatic end of one. It could have been the moment you realized that living your life without Jesus wasn't working anymore. Whenever, wherever, whatever it was, it was likely disorienting for you. In those moments, we are faced with a very real question. When those moments in life happen where we are confused, where we're interrupted, where we're disoriented, there's only one question that can be asked. Is Jesus enough? Is he really enough to right the ship to get me back to where I need to be? This morning, we're going to look in the book of Acts at the New Testament church. The people of the new early New Testament church, they had tons of these disorienting moments. They were people seeking after God and looking for Jesus' direction. And the response to that was disorienting. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there are some there in front of you. We'd like for you to take it. If you need one, take it home. So we're going to look at the life of a guy named Saul. But before we understand Saul, we've got to look a little bit at this guy named Stephen. And Stephen is found in Acts chapter 7. He has lived his life with God. He's lived his faith out loud. And he's on trial because he spoke ill of the religious leaders of the day. He was in love with Jesus and not so excited about the religious leaders of the day. And so he's on trial for his life. And he's testifying and he's telling the story of Jesus. What life was like before, what life has been since, and what life has been since his death. And then he he accurately accuses these leaders of killing Jesus, of putting him on the cross, crucifying him. And then he uses this phrase to describe them. He says, you stiff-necked people. You obstinate, ornery people. And their response is where we're going to pick up in verse 57. So Stephen makes this statement and they go nuts. In verse 57, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. I mean, really stoned him, you know? They crushed him with rocks. Not the other kind of stoned him, just so we're clear. (laughs) Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of the young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against me. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of their killing him. Luke, the disciple and the writer of Acts chapter 7, is making a point. He wants us to not lose sight of Saul. There were lots of witnesses to the events of that day. There were lots of people watching Stephen get killed. But the writer wants us to recognize Saul. So he calls him out. But Stephen, who, because he lived his life his faith out loud, he's being stoned to death. He died proclaiming God. This must have been an incredibly disorienting moment for him. One moment he's on trial, he's testifying. The next moment he's being drugged out of the city because you can't stone people in the city and they drag him outside the gates and they hurl rocks at him. It must have been a very confusing moment. But his response is significant because he forgives them. And then he lays down and he dies. He surrenders. Scripture is painting the picture of of a man surrendered to God. And this moment sparks something in Saul. As Saul is witnessing all this and he sees this incredible man forgive his accusers and then surrender his life, it sparks something in him. So the second part of verse 1 in chapter 8 says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. A couple things to know in this passage. One is that persecution breaks out. Earlier in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus sends the remaining 11 disciples out. And he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus was establishing a pattern, a map, a roadmap for his disciples and his church to follow. We want the gospel to go out. And here in the midst of this persecution by Saul, what happens? The gospel goes viral. Saul's intent is to destroy the church, but what he does is he fans a flame, and that persecution yields to surrender, and that surrender yields a a proclaiming of the gospel to the outermost parts of the world. Now, skip down in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Your Bible may have a little heading there that says something like Saul's conversion. What's about to happen in this pivotal chapter of Acts is that Saul is about to have a moment of extreme disorientation that will yield a lifetime of surrender. Look at verse one. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, He might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. At this point in scripture, Christians aren't yet called Christians. They're simply called followers of the way or the Lord's disciples. It's not until the 12th or 13th chapter, I think, where the term Christians is used. But Saul is screaming for more authority. He wants to take this fight out to the city of Damascus, but he needs permission to arrest people over there. It's clear his agenda is to destroy and silence this uprising of Christ followers. He's traveling to Damascus, which is like a hundred miles away from where he is. But it's on this journey that he has an encounter with Jesus that transforms his life. Look at verse three. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So Saul is on his way to Damascus and a voice out of the sky, people, out of the sky comes down. and says, why are you persecuting me? Why me, Saul? Jesus is clearly communicating to Saul, if you mess with my people, you're messing with me. Why are you coming after me? I mean, Saul is an incredibly devout follower of God. He believes this is what God has challenged him to do. He believes this is the most right thing in the world. And now he's faced with the very thing he's trying to end. It's what you would call the most awkward moment in the world. My daughter, Piper, my youngest, for some reason picked up this term, awkward. And whenever someone says something weird, you can hear her just in the background going, awkward. <laughs> and she cocks her mouth to the side and it's Awkward. That's exactly what's happening. It's this awkward moment that's taking place on this path. And look at what Jesus tells Saul to do in verse 6. Now get up. Notice Saul's position. He's on the ground. And Jesus says, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. For they heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat anything. You read over that text and you don't maybe quite grab hold of the gravity of what is happening in Saul's life. This is an incredibly disorienting moment. Once again, we read about a guy whose life is being turned upside down. He's on the ground, disoriented, he's blind. And all he can do is surrender to what is happening around him. This is not just a casual decision that is in Saul's life. He's not choosing what color socks or what auto insurance to buy. This is a transformational moment in the life of Saul. One scholar that I read said, it's like a volcanic eruption for Saul. And his life gets flipped all the way around. Everything he wanted, everything he desired was being now repurposed for God. The picture is of a man, a man who was feared, a man who was powerful, on the ground, unable to see, being led down the path by the hand, like a child. And so there's some things that we need to recognize here, that the only response, the only appropriate response to a moment like that with Jesus is to Surrender. Jesus is saying to Saul, as he said to me, and as he is saying to you, everything you hold is valuable and important, needs to be repurposed for me. What you know is normal is about to change. I'm not here to make your life better. I'm here to change your life. And that requires surrender. And the second thing you have to remember is surrender is never easy. One of the privileges of being on staff here is that each of us on the pastoral team uh, for a week get to be the minister on call, which means we're on call 24 hours a day. If some of you have an emergency in your life or some crisis in your life, you can call and we will respond. And I count it a privilege because nearly every time I get to engage in a conversation with somebody who has had a pivotal, pivotal transition in their life. They're disoriented and they don't know which way is up or down. And there's usually something that they're holding on to, whether it's a person or a relationship or a thing or a substance, that's preventing them from living the life they know God has for them. And my question to them every time is, are you willing to give that thing up to follow Jesus? And when their response is yes, which isn't every time, but when their response is yes, What ensues can be very disruptive, can be very disorienting. The old is made new and the familiar becomes our enemy. The true solution to surrender to the transformational journey and the masterful hand of Jesus because, and this is the reward for that surrender, because surrender brings true intimacy with Christ. I've been in church work since I was 20 years old. I'm 44 now. So more than half my life, I've been in and around church work. And through that journey, God has repurposed, has unended, has upended, and has turned over my life many, many times. I've had many disorienting experiences. And each of those times, I come back to the question, is Jesus enough? Am I going to surrender? Is Jesus enough for me this time? And I can honestly tell you that there have been seasons in my life, there have been times when those moments occur where the answer to that question for me was no. I don't believe Jesus is enough for me. One of the things I've discovered in my career is it is much easier than you might think to do church work and be totally disconnected from Jesus. In my life at several points, it has been very easy for me to replace intimacy with Jesus with dutiful, right, good, and impressive things that church people appreciate. But in those moments where the reality of my life and the dryness of my soul collide, it can be very disorienting. And the only way out of that moment is total surrender to Jesus. The only response to that question, is Jesus enough, is yes. Yes, he is. So let me ask you this morning, for you, in whatever your journey has for you, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? What we see in the life of Saul is living a life of faith means he will, we will likely be put in a position of needing to give stuff up, to have our life repurposed. Saul, who by the time we get to what we're about to read, is now called Paul, gives up his name. He gives up what he knew. Everything familiar has been turned upside down. He surrendered his life. That surrender was hard, but surrender brought true intimacy with Christ. For me, living a life free from disorientation, disorienting events is not my goal. Living a life pursuing Jesus is my goal. And that life will necessarily cause disruption. Hear this. Faith requires us to trust Jesus enough that we give up our own plans, we give up our own agenda, we give up our own expectations of people, and this will be disorienting. It will be disruptive. But there is a path out, and that path is called surrender. That surrender will be hard, but the reward is, is true intimacy with Christ. One of my favorite chapters is Philippians chapter 3, and in there, um, Saul, now called Paul, writes this important verse. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, the flesh being our own agenda, plans, our kids, our retirement, I have more. He's in an argument with people about what is righteous. He's saying, I've got more. You see, whatever you think is good and right, I have got more of it. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He's saying, I was the chief Christian. I was the religious guy. You get a sense that he built a life that was very sturdy and powerful and complete and in control. And then Jesus came in and upended that life. And he writes this, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And then he says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. And if we stopped right there, it would be a beautiful story. He's saying, I'm surrendering my life and I get to know the power of his resurrection. I get to know the gift of grace, mercy, and eternal life. That sounds pretty good, and we should just stop there. But Paul understands the disorienting nature of true surrender, and he wants to paint the truest picture of what a surrendered life looks like. And so he doesn't just stop with the beautiful stuff. He goes on, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What Paul seems to know, and what we need to embrace, is that forgiveness, restoration, and hope, that resurrected life is a good thing. But you cannot have the resurrected life without first dying. Dying to yourself, dying to your own agenda, dying to the stuff around you, surrendering to the life that God has for you. Saul, when he meets Jesus as a killer, a destroyer of people, trying to end the church and stop the movement of Jesus. Then he has this encounter, this beautiful encounter with Jesus. And he's humbly walked by the hand of And Paul begins to use words in his writing like in Christ and through Christ, Paul is a transformed man. And Jesus' intent for Paul and his intent for you and I is that we would all be transformed. That out of our surrender, we would be transformed into being more and more like him. And that is not easy. And it takes time. And it takes work. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, we are being transformed into something with greater glory to become more like the image of God. Paul is teaching us here that the longer we walk with Jesus and the more he works in us, the more we will become like him. But what does that look like, to become more like him? Well, John chapter 13, verse 3, paints a very vivid picture of what it means to become more like him. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You see, we are to be transformed into his image, and as a result, that image is not going to be what we think it's going to be. Because what Jesus did is he said, I want you to pattern your life after me. And in a meal that we now have come to know as the Last Supper, Jesus at the beginning of that meal, takes off his outer clothing and he gets down on the ground and he takes a pitcher of water and he pours it into a basin. And then he takes a towel and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. The posture of a servant The transformation in Saul's life, the transformation in my life, the transformation in your life is all for one end, and that's for us to look more like Jesus. And that starts with us dying to ourselves, because you can't get on the ground and wash someone's feet unless you've died to yourself. So that's how Jesus starts the meal. And as you know, we get to the end of the meal. And another symbolic gesture of what it means to follow Jesus starts out by being a servant and it ends with being willing to lay down your life for the people around you. And this morning we're going to participate in communion together as a family as a symbolic reminder of that work that Jesus did on the cross. That pattern that he established for you and for for me is to be a servant even unto death. But that comes from surrender. It starts with surrender in each one of us. So in just a few moments, the ushers are going to come. They're going to give you the communion elements, the cup and the wafer. I just want you to hold on to it. We're going to sing a song. And during that moment, I want you to contemplate the, the question, is Jesus enough? Wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing, is Jesus enough? today. Is Jesus enough for me? And if that's true, the only way out of that disorienting moment is to surrender. Surrender to Jesus. So hold on to the elements. I'll come back in a moment. We'll take them together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your unending, undying love for us that is so great that in the moment of our most disoriented, disruptive experiences, you meet us right there. And out of a place of surrender, you take us by the hand and you walk us through it. We're grateful for the pattern of servanthood and the pattern of sacrifice that you have challenged each of us to be transformed into. And now moment, in this moment, God, give us Courage to ask honestly and openly: Are you enough?
1: I want to thank you all for uh, being with us this morning. And you know, this uh, this idea that our, sometimes life becomes disorienting uh, is really true for all of us. And one of the things that disorients us most of all is when suffering enters our experience through whatever shape, way, or form. And so uh, next week, we're starting a new series um, in the book of Job. Job is one of the most famous books of the Bible, and it's one of the most oldest. I think it is the oldest, actually. And, um, and so we're going to take a look at Job's experience and how he dealt with suffering, because when suffering happens, the question we all ask is, Why? Whether you're a believer in a God or whether you're not a believer in God, we all ask the same question. So we're going to start a series. We're going to take a look at how Job experiences suffering and what he does with it and, uh, and hopefully glean some uh, helpful uh, information and uh, insight. Okay, so we're starting that next week. But uh, I also wanted to mention starting tomorrow, uh, we're doing something quite quite um, unique. Most of you know, for the last year, we've been talking about how we as a church can have a greater spiritual impact on our world globally, regionally, and then locally. And um, we've been doing a lot of different things. But um, in terms of regional, uh, over the last four years or so, we've been working closely with um, uh, district, uh, is it 45? District 45 along North Avenue, uh, with Schaefer uh, Elementary School and Jefferson Middle School, working with kids there and, and students there uh, that are high, at, at risk uh, students. And uh, we have a thing called Lunch Bunch we do, where if kids during during lunch wanna go and, and just spend some time talking to an adult. We have we have uh, uh, sh- kind of chaperones that go and they're part of Lunch Bunch. We, uh, we have a mentoring program that's been established there. We just recently uh, renovated uh, Schaefer's uh, courtyard in, in the center of the school uh, so that they have an outdoor space for the kids to go out and learn. So we've been doing a lot of different things, but tomorrow we're starting a, a pilot program That's never been done before. Uh, It's a a comprehensive educational intervention program. That's a a lot of words. What it basically means is that the school district has identified 16 at-risk third graders uh, who they're, they're, they're just nervous about you know, their educational process. And so they've identified 13 kids and we have, uh, we're sending a team in for the rest of the school year on a pilot program to work with these 16 kids. It's a comprehensive deal. It involves education, uh, tutoring, um, athletics, uh, nutrition, all of these different things. We have three uh, part-time employees and 25 uh, of our own people volunteering and their names are up here. And I appreciate their, uh, their willingness to give their time for these kids. And we believe that we can make a difference in their lives and change the trajectory of these 16 kids and, and hopefully uh, enable them to become uh, not only just great students, but um, um, productive uh, citizens. And so um, that starts tomorrow. And uh, we're excited about it. And I'll, I'm going to pray for. Our, are any of our team members in here at the moment? Anybody here? Just raise your hand up if, if we have some. Just, there's one in the back. A couple of people. Yeah. So it's a hey, it's a big deal. We've developed the program and um, uh, and. Uh, you know, all we ever hear on the news is how, you know, school districts and Christians are at odds with each other all the time. And here we've been given the opportunity to go in and make a difference in the community. And we believe God has opened that opportunity to us. So I'm going to pray for our team. I'm going to pray for you guys. Come back next week. We'll start with Job. And I think you're going to find it helpful. Okay, let's pray. Our Father, we, uh, we all know firsthand that life can be uh, complicated and at times disorienting. And what we do in those moments of confusion um, and, and, and trial and what we do in those moments determines who we become. And the tendency is to either uh, push uh, those things, push us toward you or push us away. And I pray that we've become a people to understand that even in the difficulties of life, you love us. And may we find comfort in that and in you. I pray for these students who we're going to be working with um, who are at risk of being kind of lost in the system. And I pray that uh, our commitment to them and to the school, to their families, uh, would make a serious difference in their lives. And I want to thank you for our our people from here who are giving their time and energy over the next school year uh, to help these students. Um, May they truly make a difference in their lives. And as we do it in the name of Jesus, um, may they at some point or another come to realize that uh, it is all about your love for them that um, motivated us to help. May our assistance help change the community and point people to you. And now, Lord, I pray that uh, you would watch over us until next week. May your hand of grace and peace rest on your people as we go. Um, We ask these things in
0: Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.